0: Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, and this week I'm delighted to welcome in a special guest, former FERC chairman John Wellinghoff. John was appointed to FERC in 2006 served as chairman of the commission from 2009 to 2013, and during that time had a real impact, lasting legacy, championed a number of incredible initiatives, including removing barriers to entry to clean energy technologies, which in many ways laid the foundation for my legacy at the commission as well. We're going to get to all that, but what I really want to talk about is John was most recently featured as the lead on 60 Minutes talking about grid security and how the security of our grid is implicated in the situation we're seeing today with Russia and Ukraine. John, I know this isn't sixty minutes, but thank you for joining <laughs> us here on the Plugged In Podcast.
1: Neil, this is it's it's always it's better than sixty minutes. It's always a great pleasure to talk with you about these topics and I love having this 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 banter back and forth. So happy to be here, Neil.
0: Well, I appreciate it. You know, during my time at FERC, one of the comments that I made, and I think people thought I was being hyperbolic at first, I said that, you know, warfare had changed to such a degree in the 21st century that, you know, no one could match the United States of America militaristically, but it's perhaps our adversaries no longer had to, and that if you could take out physical infrastructure in the U.S. through a physical attack or a cyber attack, you could have a devastating impact on energy security and national security. And I think that really came home to roost with the Colonial Pipeline incident. I made the reference at the time that if the Colonial Pipeline had been taken out by a missile, we would have very clearly understood that to be an act of terrorism or war. But because it was the uh, result of a ransomware attack, I'm not certain we are programmed to respond in the same way, but the impact was no less significant than... A missile attack would have been in terms of disruption to American lives, energy security, national security and, and, and the economy. But that's a recent incident. You've been on this going all the way back to 2013 to a infamous incident at a substation outside San Jose that could have taken out Silicon Valley. I don't know that a lot of Americans were familiar with what happened and how significant it was. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background uh, on what you saw and what you dealt with back then in 2013?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to, Neil. And yeah, it was reported in the Wall Street Journal, but but a lot of people didn't focus on it. But it was, in my opinion, the most significant physical attack. On the U.S. grid, that's ever occurred, and it was a, a very frightening event. It happened on April sixteenth, twenty thirteen. So, some eight plus years ago, um, or almost eight years ago, I guess, coming up here, um, and it wasn't something that anyone was prepared for. Uh, I got a call from Tony Early, who was the head, CEO of PG&E, uh, the day after that it happened. Day after that it happened. Um, And he indicated to me that, you know, someone had um, come into an area near a substation that PG&E owned about five miles south of San Jose and had ultimately uh, damaged a number of transformers uh, with gunfire. So I I took out um, a team, um, both uh, People from my FERC reliability office, Joe McClellan, and a, a number of, of individuals from um, uh, a, a military uh, installation that will remain nameless that uh, actually trains Navy SEALs to um, destroy infrastructure overseas. Uh, so these
0: were real deal commandos, like these yeah, were guys yeah. who knew how to how to uh, conduct this sort of operation.
1: These are people who knew how to actually. Put the package together and uh, uh, instruct people how to execute that package. And so I took them out there; these two individuals, and we uh, walked into the PGE and uh, construction trailer on the uh, site that had 21 ex- extremely high voltage transformers. You know, from from 230 kV up to 500 kV uh, transformers that you know, was a critical substation in the Silicon Valley area, as I mentioned. Um, and there were three FBI agents there. There was a couple of, <clears throat> uh, uh, there was actually all of, uh, PG&E security people there, but there was a couple of high level pg e people there. There was uh, um, uh, Gisha Williams, who was the head of transmission distribution at the time, was there. And none of them really had an idea of what actually uh, had occurred other than, They knew that their Transformers had been shot uh, by someone, and um, they were really speculating as to whether it was a disgruntled employee or some other um, just people out on a joyride type of thing. So I took the two people, uh, Special Forces people, out in the field, and we walked the area. And interestingly enough, these people who had perpetrated this Uh, on these transformers did not have to get inside the substation which was secured by a chain link fence that was really the only security was the chain link fence around it the fence actually did have a motion sensor in it but i'll talk about that in a second interesting thing happened there and some lights and cameras but beyond that there was no people on site you know there was no 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 sophisticated sensing equipment whatsoever. And these people literally walked in a pasture outside of the substation and stood outside of that substation in specific um, designated firing positions. We actually found little pyramids of rocks put up that the special forces trainers indicated were designations of firing positions um none there was no brass on the ground these people had picked up all of their some of the brass actually the fbi did find some brass i believe uh but but ultimately it was um what we believed to be you know a really a targeting package i mean i took took these these trainers back into the trailer we we sat down and I asked them, what do you think happened? And they said, somebody put together a targeting package that was very well-structured and well-thought-out. And then they gave it over to uh, a group of individuals and there, they believe there certainly were at least two and maybe three or more individuals that were involved in, these, um, in this incident that executed that targeting package in a very... Professional way, extremely professional way, and the so these result, were not
0: guys. On, these were not folks on a joy ride. These this were, wasn't somebody on a whim who was mad. These were pros.
1: These were people who had a high degree of military training and executed a a, a um, specific uh, targeted objective uh, very 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 professionally. They actually shot 120 times um, into these. Uh, Transformers, they hit their target, uh, you know, some 90 to 100 times. So it was very, very precise in their targeting. They also did not target the Case of the transformers, which is a heavier case, it's about uh, five eighths of an inch steel. What they targeted instead were the cooling fins that were outside the transformers that have oil running through them that cools the transformer. So that that was allowed them to do two, two things. Number one, they used you know a, a lower caliber gun that ultimately could just penetrate the cooling fins that are thinner steel rather than the case itself. And it allowed them to do something that um, allowed this oil to leak out slowly. So it didn't immediately cause the transformer to explode and and cause uh, a lot of uh, notice by people in the area of what was happening. So it allowed them to get away. It allowed them to escape. This oil uh, leaked out of these transformers and it took uh, PG&E and the California ISO three hours to really figure out what was going on because uh, they didn't know until these transformers actually tripped with their their overheating heat sensors uh, in the transformers that that determined that they were overheating and that tripped them off. And that caused Kaiso then to call PG&E to say, you know, what's happening to your substation. pg and saw something with their fence happening uh, as the firing was happening, but they thought it was the wind and they ignored it. So wow. yeah, so so um, you know, and and this was a, a, again you know an extremely frightening incident in the sense that it was very well planned out and, and very well executed, um, something that we've never seen before, and to, we, and we this, haven't seen since actually.
0: To this day, do we have any idea who was behind it?
1: To this day, the FBI has no clue. They have no idea whatsoever.
0: So, so pivoting to, to today, this was in 2013. You know, we're seeing uh, all manner of tactics being used uh, in the conflicts uh, uh, in Ukraine. The just absolute tragic events that are taking place there. Russia has used Ukraine as a testing ground. Am I right? Have they not? They've taken out the Ukrainian grid, I believe, on New Year's on multiple occasions. Uh, and and I've got to believe that was in part tormenting the ukrainians but potentially also a testing ground for their capabilities to see what they could do here i mean how serious are these potential vulnerabilities in the year 2022 in the united states of america
1: yes i mean that you know those those attacks on the ukrainian grid were cyber attacks that that were effective um and and they're you know certainly uh, reveals vulnerabilities in the operation of the grid. And our grid here, you know, is still remains vulnerable. Although I will say that that FERC, you know, the agency that you and I headed, um, you know, has put in uh, what they call SIP standards, critical infra- infrastructure protection standards um, with respect to both physical and cybersecurity that are requirements that our utilities must comply with. That are overseen and enforced by FERC. So, you know, I have some level of confidence, at least, that you know we're we're trying to move forward. Although, you know, I'd like to see you know a little bit more coordination among the agencies, among DHS, among DOE, and among and with FERC as well, um, and, I, and I think that, you know, at least what I saw when I was there, is that there wasn't that significant level of coordination that there needed to be. Uh, maybe it got better under your tenure, uh, hopefully it did, but you know, I think this siloing that we've seen in the federal agencies is really what in part, you know, led to 9-11 here in this country, and it's something that we have to overcome. We really have to, to uh, better coordinate among the agencies uh, to ensure that we can protect against these threats, but the threats are still there, and not only are they there, but these these perpetrators continue to get more sophisticated, both on the cyber side and on the physical side. We're seeing, you know, Al Qaeda using drones, you know, uh, and commercial uh, drones that are available for a relatively inexpensive amount of money, you know, flying in explosives and doing other things that. that could cause havoc uh, with our grid.
0: I mean, sir, it's a real thing that I think those of us in the energy space uh, have to be cognizant of, and it's new to us. Uh, I, I think coordination has certainly improved, but I also believe that you know there are still gaps that we're just simply identifying because you know owners and operators of critical energy infrastructure now find themselves on the front lines, and it's a new and uncomfortable place to be. One of the gaps that I identified during my tenure at FERC was uh, over security clearances. I had the CEO of a a pipeline company come and tell me that uh, they were briefed by ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, that their system was vulnerable, yet no one in their company, not one person, had a high enough security clearance to get the TSSCI level briefing that was necessary to even know where to invest to protect their system. Because this is all new and there's just so much we have to, to work towards in the security arena. And, and I do think FERC, working with NERC, working with DOE, DHS, um, uh, you know, we can always do better. But I do believe that those efforts are ongoing. TSA uh, has really stepped up uh, uh, its work. But, you know, there are other things we can do in the policy arena. And to pivot a little bit, you know, you you were a real champion of moving to a more distributed grid, you champion demand response, and aggregated distributed energy resources being able to to compete in the marketplace. So as we think through our grid vulnerabilities, and what we as Americans can do to better protect ourselves, while also dealing with the energy transition and also dealing with the challenges of climate change, are there policies you think that we can be pursuing in this country, uh, that not only improve our standing in terms of decarbonization, but also address some of these issues that you saw and I saw regarding physical and cybersecurity.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I you know, think, you know, taking back, back to the Ukraine analogy, I mean, we're seeing the Ukraine, Ukrainian army right now, you know, basically hold back you know, the entire Russian army and, and how are they holding them back? They're holding them back. Well, really with effectively distributed resources, you know, Javelin missiles, you know, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, the, the things that are, that are really, you know, uh, very mobile, very capable of, of being used, you know, singly or in pairs by, by, uh, you know, a small amount of, of, um, Fighting forces ultimately, and 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 going up against tanks and planes, you know, the, that are in massive amounts that the Russians are bringing in. Well, you know, if you look at the same thing with respect to our grid, you know, we have um, a massive. A structured grid with these huge substations and these central station power plants, both fossil fuel and nuclear power plants. And that was wonderful for an era in a time past when we needed to electrify our country, we needed to move quickly towards Uh, ensuring that we had the, the electricity to maintain our industry. And we have that now, but ultimately to protect it and to ensure that it is reliable and remains reliable, we need to make it more distributed. That is, we need to ensure that consumers industrial and, 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 uh, And commercial consumers, but also residential consumers, you know, have access to distributed resources and utilize those distributed resources to support the grid and make that grid uh, reliable. And and when I'm talking about distributed resources, I'm talking about rooftop solar, for example, for um, uh, residential consumers. Uh, We're talking about batteries, which include not only stationary batteries that are being used by, you know, commercial customers to reduce their demand. Uh, in their facilities but also being used by residential customers and then you know the big battery the big battery that i like to talk about um are evs which you uh, you know i just saw this morning ford is going all in on evs gm is going all in on evs i mean american companies and of course we've got tesla an american company uh that you know started the ev revolution uh in our country. Well look at EVs. Here's the statistic that I like to throw out, Neil. If you look at the statistic that they are forecasting that in the United States, we will have 22 million EVs by 2030, you know, just eight years away. If that, in fact, occurs, the capacity, the battery capacity in those EVs will equal or exceed all of the energy capacity in all of the electric generation our grid today.
0: I and mean, that's a pretty remarkable statistic. You're talking about not only transforming the U.S. electric sector, but also the automotive.
1: Right. And people – you know, worry and are concerned about. Well, all these EVs can our grid take it? Yes, our grid can take it. There have been studies by Pacific Nashua National uh, Northwest National Labs that have indicated that our grid that if our grid's used correctly and these EVs are integrated into the grid correctly as as far as the time of charging and how they're charging, it, we can sustain our our those EVs with the grid. But the other flip side of it that people don't understand and 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 really talk about that much is the fact that these EVs also can support the grid. They can be used by what's called V2G, vehicle to grid, where they're actually providing services back to the grid, energy capacity and ancillary services, which I demonstrated at FERC back in 2007 with an electric car that we drove into the driveway at FERC, and we plugged it in, uh, you know, at FERC. And then we had PGM, the grid operator in the area that that serves FERC, ultimately use that car as regulation service in their control room as one of the regulation services that they could provide to the grid. So we demonstrated it then, and it's been done in small quantities because there haven't been that many EVs on the grid. But as more and more EVs come on the grid, we'll be able to use these these, this huge capacity that we have, because most people have their car sitting around what 20, 22 hours a day, you know, most people don't drive their cars more than, you know, a couple hours a day, of that, and all the rest of the time, it can be sitting in there, sitting in a garage, either in your home, or if at your business that you drive to, and ultimately be plugged in and be making money for you. In fact, we calculated as much as seven to $10 a day just in PGM to do regulation service, that was back in, in 2007 when we, we did, did that test, um, be making money for you by supporting the grid and making the grid more resilient and more reliable and more secure. Um, so that's one thing that we need to do. The second thing we need to do is we need, do need to build up the big grid, you know the, the major grid. In fact, uh, Senator Markey just dropped a bill yesterday uh, the CHARGE that, Act? The the CHARGE Act that's intended to do that. That includes uh, looking at when you're building out the grid, incorporating in these distributed resources, which is something, of course, you know about as well, Neil, because you were, uh, you know, the father of FERC's order that ultimately requires the ISOs to ensure that from a market standpoint, these resources are incorporated into the markets. So you've done that on that side. Senator Markey is trying to do it on the planning side at FERC to ensure that these are planned in to the build out of the grid as well, as, as looking at, at these types of resources as alternative transmission uh, technologies, uh, ATTs, that ultimately will be required to be planned into the grid under Senator Markey's bill.
0: Look, this is really exciting stuff. I, I, You know, I think one of the challenges that we sometimes face is that a lot of this is being driven by technology and by innovation. And sometimes public policy just struggles to keep up with the pace of technology and innovation. Uh, but I am excited to see folks in Congress, uh, at the commission and elsewhere, you know, kind of pursuing uh, some of these these really Challenging but uh, exciting uh, policy initiatives that that could really move us uh, uh, and accelerate um, uh, us towards a resilient, reliable, clean energy future. Uh, It's exciting stuff. Well, I agree.
1: It's a very exciting. The implementation of twenty two twenty two, the you started, and we're we're finally getting that. You know, now uh, the compliance plans are being submitted by the ISOs, and then Senator Markey's bill, which I think is absolutely essential to move the next step in the planning and development of the transmission grid and all the all the the detailed planning of that. He's requiring interregional planning, which is really essential, and again requiring that these these uh, gets technologies, grid enhancing technologies be looked at in that planning process and incorporated into that planning, including distributed energy resources that uh, consumers have. Uh, So it is exciting, but the policy needs to move along and needs to move along fast. If we want to decarbonize the grid and get to that goal that that the Biden administration set, set up, and that's to decarbonize the grid by 2035, we really need to put these policies in place and get moving.
0: So for our listeners here on Plugged In, who may not be as dialed into the the specific nuances of some of these things, favorite examples, and you and I have discussed this at length, and I think it's illustrative for our listeners, is the things that look like hot dogs that hang on uh, transmission lines. Uh, uh, Can you walk through, just uh, at at a high level for our our listeners, what the real value of those hot dog-looking things is?
1: I will. I'll try to, to not get too geeky. And and, and those, those hot dog looking things on high voltage transmission lines have actually morphed into actually just a connection onto the wire. And then there's now a trailer that you can put underneath the line and then they connect up to the wire. And by doing that, they're... Um, all number two and number three, uh, they're mobile so you can move them around. But what they are to this, you know, transmission lines are fairly, fairly static things in that they, you know, the, the powers put in them from a generator on one side or a distributed resource like your solar system that may be feeding back to your distribution grid on the other side. And the power just flows where it's going to flow, where it finds least resistance. It does not have a way to be changed from a flow gate perspective, like water, like going in one direction or another. Well, these devices that we're talking about, load flow control devices can be put in the grid and make the grid dynamically operate to change the flows. So if you have The need for more power over here, where you've got less power needs over there, you can change the flow onto lines that optimize the way that the overall grid is used. Right now, our grid utilization level in this country is probably much less than 50%. It's not the lines and wires we have now is, are not being effectively used because we don't have these, these dynamic control devices inserted in the grid. There are companies now who have these devices. They're, they're relatively inexpensive, uh, they're very sophisticated. They can be controlled remotely by the grid operator. And as such, they can make the grid a dynamic system that, like a water valve, you can control whereas now the power just flows out wherever it it flows out, wherever you put the wires. And then you have to keep building more wires and bigger wires to make it flow where you want it to flow as opposed to pushing the flow or pulling the flow where you'd like it to flow
0: instead. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Former Chairman Wellinghoff here on the Plugged In Podcast. We like to geek out and, and talk substance, but we, we like to uh, delve into the personal as well. Just very briefly, uh, someone that was uh, very important to, to both of us in our lives, um, uh, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, someone I worked very closely with during yes. my time advising Leader McConnell. I know it's, uh, you know, uh, passed away last year. Uh, could you just offer some reflections of uh, your experiences with, uh, with the late senator and, and the impact that he had on, on your life and your career?
1: Uh, He had an unbelievable impact on my life and my career. I mean, he was the one who recommended me to FERC ultimately. In fact, the interesting story is he actually called my wife's brother, who he was very close with, uh, Neil Gallitz, um, and asked Neil if he thought his sister, Karen, would mind if I was asked uh, whether I wanted to go to FERC, so he actually, you know, didn't ask me directly. He asked asked my my uh, my wife's brother uh, whether or not that would be okay, and and he said, well, you know, you know, call call Karen and John and find out. Um, but he was, you know, a great human being, a great individual, and he was really um, a, a leader and um, uh, invaluable person uh, in this country, a great loss to our country. And he was the, one of the biggest, most significant advocates of clean energy, of renewable energy, and of new efficient uh, energy technology that I know of uh, in this country, as far as um, the leadership we had in this country. I mean, he was, he was a tremendous advocate of, of, those, uh, uh, you know, of clean technology.
0: Yeah, he really turned Nevada Nevada. I don't want to get in trouble, so I'll just say it both ways. Nevada. Uh, Nevada. Nevada he, turned, <laughs> he turned Nevada into a clean energy powerhouse. And, uh, and I think a lot of it is definitely attributable to, uh, to his efforts. And, uh, uh, again, he was just someone that uh, uh, was a joy to be around, a tough competitor. There were oftentimes I was on the opposite side of issues with him, but he was one that, you know, the former boxer in him, uh, you know, he could knock you out and then pick you up a second later and, and check That's in and right. see how you're doing. That's but, right. Uh, uh, to close it on out real quick. So, uh, season two, episode one, we had Jigger Shaw on, and he was talking about shooting t-shirts into the crowd, uh, at a golden state warriors <laughs> game. I know you're a big, uh, warriors guy, uh, we're oh, in the yeah. NCAA basketball tournament now, but we're, we're, we're soon turning to the, uh, NBA playoffs, you know, clay's back and healthy, Uh, Draymond's back. How how do you feel about your Warriors heading into the stretch?
1: Yeah, I feel really good. But, you know, um, it was a tough game the other night. Uh, Someone, you know, basically uh, jumped on uh, Steph Curry and turned his ankle. And, yeah. And uh, so I'm I'm a little concerned, although they say that they think he's going to be back in a couple weeks when the playoffs start. Uh, But, you know. That's going to be a tough one. we really, we need everybody healthy. We got Draymond and got Draymond is the leader of the pack. I mean, Draymond gets out there and rallies the boys. He's really amazing, amazing individual. I love Draymond, but we need Steph. Um, and we're so glad that we got Clay back. And, you know, and, and the wild card is, you know, the wild card here, uh, Neil, is Wiseman, you know. yeah, Wiseman uh, has been out. Uh, for a, almost as long as Clay, and if Wiseman comes back, and I don't know if you've seen Wiseman playing in the G League. You ought to look at some of the YouTubes on him playing in the G League. The guy's got like 15 pounds more of muscle. I mean, it's – than than when he, when he was, uh, you know, uh, playing initially for the Warriors. So uh, it could be real interesting to see w- Wiseman coming back, but I just hope that, that Steph is uh, – uh, his ankle's okay and he gets back soon.
0: Yeah, Wiseman was once the number one recruit in the country coming out of high school. Uh, yep. My guy, John Calipari, wanted him bad at Kentucky, and uh, Anthony Hardaway went and scooped him up at memory he would have. But uh, it looks like he is finally uh, achieving his potential in the NBA. Uh, John Wellinghoff, thank you for, uh, for, for your leadership, your service to the country, your continued work uh, in the energy and security space. Thank you for your friendship uh, and really appreciate you joining the Plugged In Podcast.
1: Anytime, Neil. This is always a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again for listening to season two of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to to the Daily On Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.